Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 119, and today I'm going to be looking at what Jesus meant when he told his disciples in Luke chapter 22 to sell their cloaks and buy swords. To spark this discussion, I'll begin by playing a snippet from Mark Turnage's podcast called Windows into the Bible about this passage, and we'll analyze his reasoning That in this passage, Jesus was permitting his followers to use swords to defend themselves. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith, or also on Spotify and other major podcatchers. A few months ago, I wrote a book called Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, which you can find on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much anywhere you can buy uh, digital copies of books. But on Amazon, you can also find paperback options and an audio version of the book as well. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can check out everything that BDK and I do there on our two Omega Frequency YouTube channels, Omega Frequency Live and Omega Frequency. Every other week, we've been looking at a different section of the earliest extra-biblical Christian document called the Didache. So definitely go check that out. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 119. Well, as I stated in the intro, I want to kick off this discussion about Jesus's comment in Luke 22 about his disciples carrying swords by playing an excerpt from a podcast called Windows into the Bible by Mark Turnage. I first heard of Mark Turnage on another great podcast called Capturing Christianity with Cameron Bertuzzi. And the work that Mark Turnage is doing on Windows into the Bible is just phenomenal. I've been blessed by so many of his teachings. And though I do disagree with him on uh, this point that he makes on, on the Luke 22 passage, I highly recommend his podcast, Windows into the Bible, to you. It will definitely be edifying to your soul and will strengthen your commitment to Jesus and your understanding of the historical and cultural context of the Bible. So please go check it out. Now, like I said, I do disagree with him about this point that he's making in Luke 22. So what I want to do is to first let Turnage state his argument for us. Uh, And so we're going to be looking at his concluding remarks, and this is coming around the 15 and a half uh, minute mark, but I encourage you to listen to the whole thing when we're done so that you can get his reasoning in full. But okay, here is Turnage's concluding remarks on the Luke 22 passage. Jesus is telling his disciples here in Luke's passage, at the Passover meal, his last supper, 
When I sent you out previously, you didn't have to worry. You could focus and receive people's generosity. But now things have shifted. Let the one who has money take his purse with him and use that money to establish relationship that will have heavenly and eternal value. But the one who has nothing, the one who is poor, let him sell his cloak and buy a sword. Why? So he can defend himself on the way. To this, the disciples turn to Jesus and say, here are two swords. And he says, that's enough. You don't need any more. Now, in the garden, as the guard from the chief priest come to him, one of the disciples assumes that this is the moment to defend against robbers. But Jesus has already committed himself to submit to God's will that he be the righteous victim who God will vindicate by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the judge of the end of the age. So no more of this. But he does allow his disciples to protect themselves. If they can't with wealth, then they are permitted to do so with the sword. When we enter the world of Jesus, we gain insight into his voice and into his message. Too often, we allow our assumptions about him, what we want him to say so that he looks like us, to shape how we read him and how we understand him. But if we learn to hear, we can still hear his voice and find his words relevant for us today. All right. So those were Turnage's concluding remarks on the podcast that he did on Luke 22. And again, before I get into this, I I do want to just restate how blessed I am by so much of his teachings and that I do highly recommend his podcast, Windows Into the Bible, to you by uh, Mark Turnage, okay? So please go check that out. All right, so let's get into Turnage's uh, two concluding arguments. First, he says that the disciples used to depend on the generosity of others, like in the gospel passages as found in Luke chapter 9 and 10, But now things have changed since Jesus is about to be arrested. So let's analyze this a little bit. In the book of Acts, did the apostles stop relying on the generosity of the church? Think about Acts chapter 2, where Luke writes that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and sharing with all as anyone might have need. Think about Acts chapter 4 where Luke again writes, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales 
and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Moving forward to Acts chapter 16, we see Paul continuing this principle as he and Silas and Timothy and Luke are in Philippi, and Luke records in Acts 16 verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. By looking at Luke's continued writings in Acts, it appears that even though this is now a very dangerous time to be a Christian, the apostles and disciples are still depending on the generosity of the fellow Christians. All right, so let's look at Turnage's second argument there that he puts in his conclusion, saying that the apostles used to depend on the generosity of others for protection, but now these poor disciples need to protect themselves using swords. So if that's true, first, why are only two swords enough for the rest of the disciples? Acts 1 tells us there are over a hundred disciples at this point in Jesus's ministry that are together. So why are only two swords enough for them? Also continuing in Acts, why don't these poor disciples protect themselves with swords when they are endangered by the religious leaders of the Jews? Let's look at some of these instances. First in Acts chapter four, we have Peter and John who were very poor, according to Acts chapter 3, when they are asked by the beggar at the gate called Beautiful uh, for money, and they say, we don't have silver or gold, right? So these are poor disciples. And yet after preaching a message of repentance and the gospel to the Jews who witnessed the miracle of that crippled beggar there at the gate called Beautiful, as they are speaking, Acts 4, 1 says, As Peter and John are speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, at this point, there are over 3,000 people that are following Jesus. That is certainly a formidable potential army there. And yet the apostles do not resist the evildoer there. Let's skip to Acts 5. So at this point, we know from Acts 4 that there are over 5,000 believers now. And yet Luke records in Acts 5, 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed." So it's safe to say that now the number is far more than 5,000, potentially 
potentially 10,000. We don't know. Luke doesn't record, but multitudes and multitudes. So this is far more than 5,000 now. So again, they have a potentially formidable force to rise up against the rebellious, sinful, unrepentant Jewish authorities and stop persecution from happening. Yet, what happens? Well, Acts 5.17 says, But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Again, the apostles do not resist the evildoers. Verse 19, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go! Stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Were they teaching people to take up arms and resist the evildoer? Well, no. The Jewish authorities hear about this, send the temple guards into the temple to uh, arrest the apostles again. Verse 27 records, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, wait a second. Didn't the Lord tell them to get two swords to defend themselves? If that's literally what Jesus meant, why are they not obeying God? The Lord Jesus is God, isn't he? Why are they not resisting the evildoers and defending themselves? Well, let's continue. One of the highest ranking rabbis of the time and a member of the council named Gamaliel has encouraged the high priest and his associates basically to chill out saying, look, if this is not from God, it's going to fizzle out. You don't need to worry about it. But if it is from God, if this Christian movement is from God, you are going to lose. Basically, you won't be able to stop it if it is from God. So you need to chill. Verse 40 says, they took Gamaliel's advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. They beat them with rods and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So the apostles then rounded up the multitude of disciples and started a violent revolution. No, that is not what they did. Verse 41 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Acts chapter 6, we are introduced to Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, we see his confrontation before the council and how the council, after hearing Stephen call them to repent, 
drag Stephen outside the city and stone him to death. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Luke records Saul, who later became, becomes known as Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So again, they got their swords together and started a violent revolution against those Jews that were in opposition to them. No. Luke says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, the main purpose of my podcast is to expose people to the beliefs and values and writings of the earliest followers of Jesus, those disciples who uh, existed before the Council of Nicaea. And so, this time period is called the Anti-Nicene Age of the Church, the pre-Council of Nicaea Age. So, what did the believers for the first 300 years of the faith have to say about the use of weapons for personal defense against people. Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho the Jew. This is from chapter 110. Justin writes, Two advents of Christ have been announced. The one in which he is set forth as suffering, inglorious, dishonored, and crucified, but the other in which he shall come from heaven with glory, when the man of apostasy who speaks strange things against the Most High shall venture to do unlawful deeds against the Christians on earth, who, having learned the true worship of God from the law and the word which went forth from Jerusalem by means of the apostles of Jesus, have fled for safety to the God of Jacob and the God of Israel. Let me pause there for a second. Just a little quick note Justin, like all the other anti-Nicene Christians, believed that Christians will be on the earth during the reign of the Antichrist. So, just keep that in mind. But let's continue. So, he says that we who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each throughout the whole earth changed our warlike weapons our swords into plowshares, and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, and hope, which we have from the Father through him who was crucified. Now, let me pause there just for a second. Notice that Justin is saying the prophecy from Isaiah 2 is at least partially being fulfilled in the Christians. And he'll come back to that in just a second. Let's continue. Justin writes, now it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus all over the world. For it is plain that though beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts and chains and fire and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do others and in larger numbers become faithful and worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. For just as if one should cut away the fruit-bearing parts of a vine, it grows up again and yields other branches flourishing and fruitful, 
even so the same thing happens with us. For the vine planted by God and Christ the Savior is his people, but the rest of the prophecy shall be fulfilled at his second coming. So Justin is saying part of that prophecy from Isaiah 2 is true in us. We have turned our swords into plowshares. We no longer train for war anymore. And he actually says that by willingly giving up their lives, by not defending themselves with swords, the gospel spreads even more abundantly. Hmm. And he says, this is not a localized phenomenon, but this is happening all over the world. And he's writing about 160 AD. Let's move forward 20 years to Irenaeus. And he writes, from the Lord's advent, the new covenant which brings back peace and the law which gives life has gone forth over the whole earth. As the prophet said, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall break down their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they shall no longer learn to fight. If therefore another law and word going forth from Jerusalem brought in such a reign of peace among the Gentiles which received it, the word, and convinced through them many a nation of its folly, then only it appears that the prophet spoke of some other person. But if the law of liberty, that is, the word of God preached by the apostles who went forth from Jerusalem throughout all the earth, caused such a change in the state of things that these nations did not form the swords and war lances into plowshares and change them into pruning hooks for reaping the corn, that is, into, into instruments used for peaceful purposes, and that they are now unaccustomed to fighting, but when smitten offer the other cheek, then the prophets have not spoken these things of any other person, but of him who affected them. So basically, Irenaeus is saying that prophecy in Isaiah 2, because it's being fulfilled in the Christians, the Gentiles who are now turning to Christ and trading in their swords for plowshares, it's proving the validity of Jesus's message and that the gospel really does transform lives. Let's go to Tertullian's Apology to the Nations. He's writing in chapter 37, and this is quite impressive. Tertullian, like Irenaeus, like Justin, is saying that one of the main proofs of the validity of the gospel is the Gentiles being transformed from warlike people to peaceable people who lay down their lives instead of taking them to defend themselves. So Tertullian writes at the end of the second century, around 197, 198, if we are enjoined then to love our enemies, as I have remarked above, whom have we to hate? If injured, we are forbidden to retaliate, lest we become as bad ourselves. Who can suffer injury at our hands? We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. Now, pause there. Tertullian saying, guys, we are everywhere. We are everywhere, and yet we don't retaliate when we are injured. We gladly lay down our lives 
and yet we have filled the entire world. Now watch what he does with that logic. He continues, For what wars should we not be fit, not eager, even with unequal forces, we who so willingly yield ourselves to the sword, if in our religion it were not counted better to be slain than to slay? So Tertullian is basically saying, we are so numerous that if we weren't commanded to not retaliate, we could put up an intense, serious fight with the Roman army. It's pretty powerful stuff. Let's continue. We'll do a few more. This is from Commodianus in 240. He writes, do not willingly use force and do not return force when it is used against you. Here's Cyprian in 250. Christians do not attack their assailants in return, for it is not lawful for the innocent to kill even the guilty. The hand must not be spotted with the sword and blood, not after the Eucharist is carried in it. That's the Lord's Supper. Finally, Lactantius around 304, he writes, Religion is to be defended, not by putting to death, but by dying not by cruelty, but by patient endurance, not by guilt, but by good faith. For the former belongs to evil, but the latter to good. For if you wish to defend religion by bloodshed, tortures, and guilt, it will no longer be defended. Rather, it will be polluted and profaned. So let's stop here with the early Christian quotes and Let's briefly walk through Luke 22, and we'll discuss, speaking of the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper, how Jesus says he wants to be remembered. So, starting in verse 14 of chapter 22 in Luke, we're at the Last Supper, and Luke records, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and by the way, Judas is there. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes." And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice that Jesus is saying, this is how he wants to be remembered the Son of Man, the Lord of all, not seeking to destroy his enemies, but to save them. This is how Jesus wants to be remembered. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. 
Now, pausing for a second, Jesus invokes the title Son of Man here, which is a callback to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man approaches the ancient of days and all nations of the world bow down to this son of man and worship him. He's saying, my kingdom is coming. My kingdom is coming, but I want you to remember me now as the suffering servant, the suffering son of man. This is how I will be able to bring my kingdom to its fulfillment. Continuing in verse 24. Now there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's so interesting. He just called himself the son of man. And yet they begin to to argue with each other over which one of them is the greatest. He is the greatest, and yet he is the one who serves. This is how Jesus wants to be remembered, the one who serves his enemies to make them friends and family. Continuing verse 28, Jesus said, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you will rule with me, but first, first, you are called to serve with me. Jesus continues, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Pausing there. The sift you... You is not singular, it's plural, it's y'all in Texan speak. So Jesus is telling Simon that Satan has demanded permission to sift the disciples, the apostles, like wheat. Continuing verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned again, like repented, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So the apostles still don't get it. Verse 35, and Jesus said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, You did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. Now, that's a callback to Luke chapter 9 when he sent them out in pairs, the the, uh, apostles out in pairs to those villages in the Galilee and telling them to go preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And such a great crowd gathered that you then have the multitudes over 5,000 people coming to Jesus where he feeds them with two fish and five loaves. Verse 36, and he said to them, but now 
Whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Well, why did Jesus say that? Well, if we continue reading, Jesus tells us, verse 37, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Do you remember when Jesus said, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve? That from Mark chapter 10. And Jesus here in Luke chapter 22 is is also saying basically the same thing here because he calls himself the son of man. And he says, he is the greatest who has come to serve. And yet he's quoting Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. So let's look at Isaiah 53. This is, of course, the famous chapter about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. It begins, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so Isaiah is saying, Hey, This message is not going to be widely accepted because what looks like weakness and failure and humiliation is actually strength and victory and glory. This is the upside down or rather right side up way of the kingdom of God. Verse two, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, 
the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of the many and interceded for the transgressors. Why did he tell them to take two swords? Because he would be numbered with the transgressors. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, this word sword is makaira. Properly, this is a slaughter knife, a short sword or dagger mainly used for stabbing, an instrument for exacting retribution. It's very similar and it derives most likely from the word makomai. And makomai means to engage in battle, to fight, to strive, to contend, to dispute. Paul uses this word in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. He writes, The Lord's bondservant must not be makisthai, which is a derivative of makomai. They must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient, long-suffering when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the devil by using kindness and patience and gentleness in the hopes that this will wake up the enemies of the gospel, that their eyes would be turned from darkness to light. They would be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, and that they would become awakened to new life by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Why does Paul call Timothy to act this way? Because that's how bondservants are supposed to act. That's how the ultimate bondservant acted. And we see Jesus do just that as we continue in Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And Jesus came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pausing there. 
Notice who falls into temptation from this point forward. Is it the one who was praying or the one, the ones who were not praying? Verse 47, and while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw that this was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And this is me interjecting here. Does Jesus say yes? No, he does not. Before he even answers, verse 50 says, And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. Now, the Gospel of John, in John's recollection of this event, includes for us that the disciple who struck the slave of the high priest was Peter. And we find out that the name of the man who was struck was named Malchus. Now, Malchus, that word means kingly. Jesus, the king, reaches down and takes the ear that Peter had cut off and heals Malchus. Now, does Malchus then retaliate and strike Peter? No. Who acts more like the king? In that scenario, Peter or Malchus? And why do we even know his name? Why do we know Malchus's name? Well, we're not sure, but most likely it's because Malchus, because of the kindness, gentleness, and patience showed toward him, became a follower of Jesus. Now, Tertullian comments on this scene in his work on idolatry in chapter 19. And he says, the Lord in disarming Peter disarmed every soldier. One day the son of man is going to return and violently destroy evil for good. But that is not the way we are called to remember him. First, we are called to remember him as the son of man who serves. And we remember him by also serving. First he serves, then he will rule. First, we are called to serve, and then we will rule. Now, as Mark said so well at the beginning of the clip that we played from the podcast that he did on this subject, too often we allow our assumptions about Jesus, what we want him to say so that he looks like us, to shape how we read him and how we understand him. But if we learn to hear, we can still hear his voice and find his words relevant for us today. So let's remember the words of one of his most popular disciples, the Apostle Paul. Let's remember his words from 1 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, 
We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And from Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And skipping to verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God bless you. that they